All right. How does Christ think about the scriptures? What does he think about them? How does he use them? That's what I'm wanting to know. Because it's kind of a thing I've been searching for for, I don't know, just kind of recently I started a blog and I have decided to take my blog to YouTube and just present these my ideas or things that I'm trying to work out. Um, and one of the reasons why I'm trying to work this out is because of all the conflict even inside of the church over what the scriptures are and how to use them. And so I'm wanting to get just go back to Jesus and figure out what does he think about them because whatever Jesus thinks about them is what I want to think about them. Amen? All right, thank you. Um, so what does he think about them? I mean, throughout history there has been you know, discourse and debate over what the scriptures are and how we can use them and what implications to make from the scriptures. And um, even in Jesus' time with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, one of the things that I found out in this study as I'm trying to figure out this topic is that the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they had their ideas of what the scriptures actually were. The Sadducees, and I'll get into this later, but the Sadducees only believed that the Pentateuch was the inspired word of God, and anything after that was kind of just man-made literature, you know, good advice, wasn't, you know, ordained or wasn't inspired by God. It didn't doesn't have his authority on those, on those later uh, books that were written, only the first five, only the first five, and that was it. So even during his time, there's a conflict, and there's been conflicts throughout the ages, and there's even conflicts now in today's church on, especially this word inerr inerrancy. Um, but I'm not wanting to get into any of that. I'm wanting to push all these people aside, including the Pharisees and Sadducees, including you know myself, including experts on the scriptures, you know high textual critics. Um, I'm wanting to push them all away and just figure out, you know, what did Christ think about them through the stories of the gospel? What does he think about them? And so, let's get into it. And how I plan on figuring out this, this, um, trying to paint this picture, um, how I want to do that is just looking through several different verses where Christ uses scripture and where Christ talks about the scripture and, to draw out implications of that, there are several different, I mean, there's plenty of verses where Christ qu quotes Scripture. And so I want to look at a few of them trying to paint a picture of what he thinks about them. So we're just going to have to go through these Scriptures and look at them, talk about them, and think about them. So let's go to the first, the first one. It comes in John 10, 35. And in the context of this verse or this little episode, Jesus is talking to the Jews and he has offended them. You could say he has triggered them, if you want to use a 21st century, 21st century word. He has triggered the Jews by saying that he, he claimed himself to be one with the Father earlier, just a few verses earlier, or I think the, the maybe it's in 34 um, and they get really upset. In fact, after this, after he says this in verse 35, they plan on killing him. But to defuse the situation, 
Jesus quotes scripture. And he does that to diffuse the situation, to um, try and reason with them, even though it doesn't I don't, I don't know how much it worked because you would have to figure out what would happen if he didn't quote this scripture. But all that is not important. What I'm wanting to figure out is this little parenthetical statement. Um, so what I'm, I'm just going to read uh, this verse. And it says, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken... Do you say of him who the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Now, he's quoting from a psalm, Psalm 82. And he's presenting them an argument, but I'm not wanting to get into that argument. What I'm really just wanting to do is look at this little premise that he slips in there. It's a parenthetical statement, and it is, and the scripture cannot be broken. And from that, we can learn, okay, this is something that he believes scripture is. He believes that it's something that cannot be broken. Um, another word that can be translated as broken is loosened or destroyed. Um, another thing to, to learn from this is that he's actually using Scripture here with the Jews, so the Jews themselves thought very highly of Scripture. Enough where Jesus would quote Scripture to them to diffuse, to diffuse um, the tension that's going on here after he claimed oneness with the Father. They said it was blaspheming, and then after this they planned to kill him because of what he's saying. Um... You know, another commentator, not a commentator, but a person who commentated, I guess it would be a commentator, on this verse, points out that Psalm 82 is kind of a not very known, well-known uh, psalm. I don't know of any other places. I don't think that it's quoted anywhere else in the Bible. It's not very well, it's not used that often. I know in church, I never heard of a lesson or I can't remember a lesson that was taught from this psalm and so what this guy said is that he's quoting from a mediocre psalm the psalm isn't really that important but he still believes that it's the word of God um, and so you can make an inference from that and kind of look at all of the psalms that you could say I think pretty easily because he quotes this not very well-known psalm that he believes all the psalms are scripture. Um, and so that, that's just another thing that we can put on this picture. But the main thing that I'm wanting to, to look at in this verse is that little parenthetical phrase, and the scripture cannot be broken. Um, which means that the scripture cannot contradict itself. Um, there are some places in the Bible that seem like it is contradicting or it's kind of hard to understand because um, the Bible is a very complicated and difficult text. I mean, people have dedicated their lives to this. I'm dedicating to my life to this book, trying to figure out these these things, and I'm trying to figure out 
you know, some of these things and some of the topics and ideas can be difficult to reconcile. I mean, you can go on Google and just look up, um, just type in contradictions in the Bible and you'll get all kinds of results. Um, I did that earlier before doing this little podcast or just show. It's not a podcast, but I want it to be a podcast. Um, I, yes, I Googled um, contradictions in the Bible and all these different kinds of results came up. I went to several websites. And the last one that I looked at was a atheist website where this person listed 166 contradictions in the Bible, places where it does not make sense, places essentially where the scripture breaks. 166 of them this guy put up. And I looked through several of them, and one of them was in Romans, where Paul says the scripture, not, he didn't say the scripture, he's, he, Paul, the apostle Paul says, no one is righteous, no, not one. And he's also quoting a psalm there too. But then where it contradicts the Bible is over in Job, where in Job, it says about him in the first chapter that he is righteous and he is, or he is blameless or he is sinless. I think there are several different translations about Job, but he is a righteous man. But then in the Psalm and also in Romans, it says that no one is righteous, no, not one. So how do you reconcile these ideas? And I, I could go into that, and I, but I don't want to because that's not what I'm trying to figure out here. I'm not trying to reconcile every single seeming, seemingly contradiction or seemingly apparent contradiction in the Bible. Um, I'm just wanting to point out that Christ believes that you can't or that it, the Scripture will not break. That even though a lot of texts are difficult and hard to understand, um, looking at them with an elementary elementary eyes that you're going to have to dig in a little deeper than that. And even Christ himself, he uses a lot of paradoxes, paradoxical statements where he'll say two ideas that are, are in contradiction. Um, but he, he wants people to dig more into what he's saying, and that's what I believe, what he believes with these seeming contradictions. These apparent contradictions are at least surface-level contradictions like in Romans and Job. There is more than that, but I'm not going to go into them all. Um, the paradoxical statements do really intrigue me. Some of them are, um, in order to live, you're, you have to die, in a sense. In order to gain your life, you must lose it. So to live, you've got to die. Um, another one is, if you want to be great, be least. If you want to go to the top, go to the bottom. Like th That doesn't make sense. That's, those are two contradicting ideas. If you want to go to the top, you go to the top. But he's saying if you want to go to the top, you go to the bottom. Or if you want to live, you've got to die. And just on the surface level, thinking about those ideas that Christ puts forth, it's confusing, it's it can be hard. And a lot of those things I'm still trying to figure out. But just because I can't figure them out does not mean that his words are broken, that it doesn't make sense. And so 
that's what we get with this verse here, this little parenthetical statement, that Christ believes that ultimately that Christ, that God's word, that scripture, cannot be broken. All right, so let's go to the next one. This one comes in Mark. He's talking with the Sadducees and what I was kind of referring to in the beginning with the Sadducees where um, I learned that the Sadducees only thought that the Pentateuch or the Torah or the first five books of the Bible were the inspired word of God. And so they didn't see the rest of Scripture or the rest of the books of the Bible as Scripture. You know, things like the Chronicles, Samuel, or all the Judges, or the book of Joshua, minor prophets, major prophets, all those were not Scripture to the Sadducees. And so what's interesting is, uh, or another an idea that they put forth because of this, is that there is no talk about resurrection, and there is no talk about uh, an afterlife in the first five books, and so they didn't believe in an afterlife. You know, once death came, it was over, you ceased to exist, you were done, you were gone. You were no more after death. That was a belief of the Sadducees, and um, one of the arguments that they used to prove um, their stance where they stood is because of this law from Moses, where if a woman's husband dies, then she marries his brother, and then they ask him this question of this scenario happening seven times. Whose wife is she going to be in the afterlife, if there is an afterlife? And of course, it's a ridiculous question, therefore, um, there is no afterlife, is was essentially what, what they're saying here in these verses. And... From this scripture that Jesus quotes, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, he makes a grammatical argument from God's word, from the tense and the way it is structured. From those implications, he draws an argument for an afterlife, that the Sadducees are mistaken because they do not take God's word seriously, even in their own books of the first five books of the Bible. And so he goes after them from their books into the book of Moses. He says that right before where I have it highlighted in green, have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. So what is he saying right there? How is he using Scripture? Um, he is using this grammatical structure of God saying, I am. And, and I have to back up a little bit. Because the context and the, and the timeline is very important because it has to do with the argument that Christ is talking about here. At this point where Moses is in front of the burning bush, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for 400 plus years. And so, according to the Sadducees, they should have been dead. They should have ceased to exist. They should have just been gone. And there should be no reference to them because there is, there is no Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're just done. But God says, says to, to Moses, 
after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for 400 plus years. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then from this grammatical structure of God saying I am, which is a present tense be verb in English at least, he's saying God is claiming present day ownership of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So because they don't understand the power of God, they don't understand that God is the God of the living, not of the dead, he wouldn't say that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob if their spirit or if their existence wasn't even continuing or continuing at that moment 400 years after their death. That just doesn't make sense. And so from all that, I am just wanting to say basically that to Christ, grammar and word usage and tense was very important. So important that he actually draws an afterlife theology based off of the words, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. From that one line, he draws, he said, he basically says, look, because of what God is saying here, there's life, there's life after death. And so we can say that to Christ's grammar and word usage and verb tense was important. And when we go to the Scripture and we read the Scripture, that we pay attention to all those things and make implications and applications from those little minute details that may seem like they are unimportant, but to Christ that they were very important, so much important that he makes this he makes his claim of an afterlife from them. So we can add this to this picture now. So now, in Matthew 19. I have to think here for a second. Matthew 19, in the context here, they're asking Christ about divorce. Um, that Moses gave them a certificate of divorce. Of course, God gave them that because of the hardness of their heart. But look at how God set up things. Um... And then he quotes from Genesis again. And we can, as we've seen before, he believed that Genesis is the book of Moses, that Moses wrote this. And so this part right here in blue that I have highlighted is a section in Genesis that Moses is narrating. But what I find interesting about this is that he doesn't attribute this line to Moses. So I'm going to go ahead and just read these verses in Matthew 19. Matthew 19, 4 through 6. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then, they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And this is, um, he's quoting from Genesis 2, 18 through 25, not uh, the whole thing, 18 through 25, it's probably verse 24, 25, maybe. But it's this part that I have highlighted in blue. I think next time that I make these PowerPoints that I should probably have the verses. Um, I thought I didn't need it, but whatever, I'll, I'm still trying to figure this thing out.
So there in green, where it says, And the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. That's where God talks in the narration. It's saying, look, this is where God's talking. And then it stops. And then there's narration. And then in red, I have where Adam is talking, where it says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He shall be, She shall be called woman. Da, 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 da. That's where Adam speaks, and then it goes back to the narration. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That is where Jesus is quoting here in Matthew 19, 4 through 6. But God is not talking here. God talked earlier in verse 18, it looks like. However, Christ here attributes the authority of the statement to God. He doesn't stop at Moses, even though he believes Moses wrote it. He says, therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And this is what I find very interesting because you know, I've been to churches before, different churches, and listened to plenty of preachers talk. And I've heard several preachers, especially whenever they're preaching out of the major minor prophets, and they'll say, and it says, thus saith the Lord. And they'll make it a point of emphasis, where it's thus saith the Lord, and then then he'll say, this is where God is speaking here, so pay attention. But Christ here is actually reading a thus saith the Lord when there's no phrase, thus saith the Lord. You know, in earlier in verse 18, you know, this is where God is speaking. He said, it's not good... It is not good that a man should be alone. Like that is where God is speaking. Then God stops talking. Then it goes into where Adam speaks. And then back into the narration of Moses. But from the narration of Moses, he does not attribute the authority to Moses, but he attributes it to God. What God has joined together, let not man separate. And so he reads a, thus saith the Lord, into these passages. And I think that's very important. Also, I found very interesting as looking at these some of these verses where you know, Christ quotes Scripture. There he believes the Scripture ultimately, even though a prophet may have been writing it, or in the psalm that we looked at earlier that he quotes from in 82, he attributes those... Um, the authority of those to God and not to the psalmist and not to Moses. So that's just another thing that we can add to this to this little picture that we are creating. So Luke 16. It's the next verse. I think there is one more one more verse I want to look after this. Um, this is the parable with the rich man and Lazarus and the rich man is asking Abraham if somebody could go back and tell his relatives to warn them about the afterlife, um, that they don't want to go where he went. But then Abraham, which is ultimately what Christ is saying, because Christ is telling the parable, I don't believe that this story actually happened. I think this is a story that Christ is giving us to learn from, and what he's trying to teach us right here in this moment is some is what he thinks about scripture and how persuasive and how powerful it actually is um 
So I'll go ahead and just read the verse. It comes from Luke 16, 31. Then Abraham said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So what's he saying here? You know, What can we learn from Scripture from this verse? If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, that's Scripture. As we showed... Uh, saw earlier that he believes Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, and of course you have the prophets after Moses. And so he's saying when you go back and you read those books, it's not like you're just reading um, any old book. You're not just looking at um, the text and learning information from the text. You're actually having a conversation. You know, listen. It, it has to do with, with hearing. Um, it's you're getting into a conversation with Moses or the prophets whenever you go back to the scriptures. And it's also what it's like whenever you go and you look at the Gospels or the New Testament. It's like listening to Jesus himself or the Apostle Paul or Peter or any of the later epistles. It's like having a conversation with them. But ultimately from this verse is what I find the most interesting and also an area of weakness for myself is that if they, do not, if they do not believe the scriptures, then they're not going to be persuaded by somebody who rises from the dead. Which is also to say that they're not going to be persuaded by a miracle. And I asked myself this question, if I would feel more confident to go out and talk to people about Christ and the gospel, if I could do a miracle, if I could do an actual real miracle where I, you know, break the laws of physics or whatever a miracle is, you know, if I could levitate, walk on water, you know, you can get really creative with what kind of miracles um, you could do, but I'm, I don't think it would be fruitful according to this verse and what Christ is trying to tell us here. It's not going to be helpful. If they are not persuaded by what the scriptures say, they're not going to be persuaded by miracles. And so we could say from this that he is equating, or at least he's saying that scripture is more powerful and more persuasive than actual miracles. Um, I, I ask myself this, and I also ask you this, like, do you believe that? If you go, would go out and talk to someone and point them to Scripture and, and teach them the Scriptures, do you think that would be more persuasive than if you could you know, walk on water or levitate or do any of those cool things that Chris Angel did? Or um, I don't know. I was thinking about getting into the movie The Prestige because I like that movie a lot, but I'm not going to. Anyways... I think it would be a lot of fun if I could do a lot of miracles. I think that's probably the main reason why, or one of the reasons why I have a hard time with this with this verse is because I'm not so, I guess I don't have the same conviction as I ought to have that Scripture itself is more powerful to change people's minds. And... We can even take application for ourselves, too. Like, I don't know if you ever have, but I've asked for signs before where I'm not going to say exactly what signs I've asked for, um, 
but like why am I asking for signs or why does anybody ask for a sign? It's to be persuaded on the correct view of you know whatever they're wanting and asked to assign for. They want to know if God is real or not, so send me a miracle. Um, so Jesus is saying, if you want to know if God's real or not, go to the scriptures. It's actually it's going to persuade you that he is who he says he is, more so if he came down and did a miracle. So we can add this now to the this picture of what Christ thinks about the scripture and I think this is a very powerful powerful verse of what he thinks about them and then the this slide I was wanting to just look at all the stories that he talked about he doesn't name every single story that happens in the Bible I don't think it would have been possible to I don't think it would have been possible to write all of that in any of the gospels but he does talk about a lot of difficult passages that are hard, that are very hard for people to comprehend happen. Like Noah, especially Noah and the ark. But he mentions Noah and the ark, and you can see what he believes of that in Matthew 24, 37 through 39. Or Jonah and the whale. We've got Adam and Eve, um, Isaac and Jacob, Daniel and Isaiah, Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah, manna falling down from heaven, heaven, Abel, all these stories Christ talked about. Um, so we can say that he believed all these stories, and that's that's uh, what he believed, even though some of them may be difficult to accept happen or not. We can say that he believed them. Which draws me, or makes me think of a... Another thing about Christ is that he, he never says anything bad about the Scripture. He's never said anything like, maybe this happened, maybe it didn't, like with Noah and the ark. He wasn't talking about, well, maybe Noah was a real person, but I'm not really sure if it was a flood you know, that destroyed the whole world. He never says anything like that, or with the manna, or with any other verse that he doesn't quote, or any other story that he doesn't um, talk about. He only says that they are um, this picture that I'm painting. He only believes in the grammatical structure of them. He only um, what are some other ones? I'm drawing a blank. He only attributes them to act, to being God and from God's word. And so he never says anything negative about them. And then the last verse in John 5, 39 through 40. And I think that this was probably the best verse to end on because ultimately that there are some people, and in here I think he's talking to the Pharisees or the Jews, that you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they that which um, testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Ultimately, Christ thought that the scriptures were made for us and for people to point to him, to bring us to him. And if they are not bringing us to him, then they are of no use to people. And that's what he believed. And that's what he's telling the Pharisees at this time. You may look at the scriptures and you may get good advice. You may get good ideas. You may, have, you may think you're getting life from them, but you're not. 
you they have to be pointing to me in some way and so i think this is kind of like the end the wrapper on the package of what christ thinks of the scripture scriptures is that they ultimately have to be pointing back to him if they're not leading him, that you to him he doesn't believe that they're going to give you life the life that he can give people so that's it that's that is ultimately what i think christ thinks about the scripture and i can just i guess recap real quick um he believes it cannot be broken that it won't contradict itself grammar and tense are important um he ultimately attributes narration or the bible to the authority of god in that scripture is more persuasive than miracles or as persuasive as miracles he talks about all kinds of stories that are difficult to comprehend not comprehend but actually believe happened but he believed that they happened and then that ultimately scripture points to him and that life he believes that the life was in him and that um, to have life you must come to him and not to the scriptures and so this is the utility and what we use the scriptures for so that's it thank you for listening and paying attention or just listening the whole time hopefully we'll be doing more in the future all right thank you